focus on the one thing in your life where you are already resilient, imaginative, resourceful, collaborative, whatever it might be, and just kind of recognize that it may be in some way the narrow area of your life, you already possess these virtues to a, to a very significant extent. And then think to yourself, you know, I have these, these are part of my treasure, treasury, my character exists, but, but so far maybe I only exists in a relatively narrow area. Find where the taproot of your learning power is already, and then just see if you can grow it outwards from there. Hello. 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 Hi. Welcome chef. to the singing podcast. That was awful. Hi. No, it's kind of fun. Sorry. Hello. <laughs> and welcome to the Happy Pair podcast. I hope you're doing splendid. Good day to you. Good morning. Good afternoon. If I don't see you tonight, good evening. Yeah. I hope, hope your day's been fantastic. I really do. And I hope you've been calm and kind and gentle to yourself. That's very nice of you, Thanks. boys. Thanks, Sarah. Um, I want to ask you a question. Dun 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 dun. dun. Uh -oh. nervous? Do uh -oh. you like small talk? Love it. Depends. Uh, yeah, we're pretty good at like talking crap. I, I think it's years of the shop, like having to years of training that muscle of working in the shop and kind of being world class at small talk. Oh, the weather's great. I like your top. Oh, hello. Disarming people. Well, it's funny because I I listen to um. Yeah, but do you like it actually? I, love I think it. I'm, I'm good skill at it. I don't see small talk as a thing in itself I see it as a way to get to know people and I see small talk as part of the journey and I think it's just part of the dance it's you know if you do want to get to know someone small talk is like it's a way of gauging do I want to go deeper with you or is it worth it for me you know the way and it's a nice way of you know just dabbling deadly because literally I was just going to say I listened to uh, uh, Jordan Peterson the other day and he was saying he used to say he hated small talk until he realized that just like you're saying Stephen it's actually a really high form of intelligence to be able to do it well, because if you are good at small talk, you're able to gauge by a person's response of if you can or cannot go deeper. And mm. like by little subtleties that you might throw into that. And I thought that was quite yeah. interesting. And I, I really do from years of working in the shop. And that's why I think it's so important for people to work in a pub or a cafe yeah. or a restaurant or a shop. Because you learn these skills with every person. You've got the capacity to interact with all these people and you're forced out of your comfort zone because... If you spend a lot of time at home on computers and whatnot, you don't get these people skills. And I think they're learned behaviors of interacting with people and the subtle cues of body language and lips and eyes. Can I go on about the benefit? One little tiny little thing. Benefit of small talk is one of the leading, one of the leading things in terms of longevity is social integration. It's like not how deep and how good are your relations, obviously, is one of the, the main drivers, but also do you say hello to people? Do you have the small talk? Do you have the chats about it? It's a lovely day. I love your scarf. Hair's looking good today, Mary. Did you see the match, John? These Brilliant. little chats are so important for a sense of belonging, a sense of being a part of something, social integration, social adhesion, which is really, really important and being proven to be very important to longevity. So small it's talk. True. Yay. Well, that I remember, was fascinating, Stephen. I remember when I worked in your cafe years ago and uh, I was just saying to Shawnee earlier how I... Uh, I felt like the ultimate weather woman. Like I felt I knew the weather so well because you'd people were constantly coming in and they'd tell you your their little bit. It's like, oh yeah, but you know, I hear it's gonna be twenty degrees this weekend. And someone else would be like, Oh, but there's a northwesterly wind coming in on Monday. <laughs> and I'd literally just reel off the spiel to right. else. I was like, I know the weather so well. Well it's a safe space where you don't have to show any vulnerability. It's well just you need a few little things. It's certainly what I remember in the shop, you needed a few little things like oh the the the, the new Sicilian oranges are in and they're grown on the volcanic soils of Sicily. Have you tried one? And you know, and then you'd immediately disarm someone and 
Like, I guess it's those kind of little tactics. That was certainly in the shop, I remember. The cool like thing about the shop, though, as well, because when I worked there too, I noticed that because back then, well, it was like 12 years ago, I worked there, and there wasn't many, well, not as much now anyway, um, alternatives places for people who had like any illnesses to go to. And they kind of looked at somewhere like the Happy Pear Fruit and Veg Shop as one of those places. You, I, I don't know, I get a lot of people who had like, oh, I've been suffering from psoriasis from years, like medication's not working. I'm kind of looking for alternatives. Vegetables. Yeah. And I remember I used to get assings all the time when I was like 18 at the time. I felt very intelligent. <laughs> um, of and, course I know the answer. Yeah. And it's funny because people were just so willing to tell me such deep things. I thought it was amazing. And it's just because it looked a bit, you know, it was a bit more different there. It didn't have all your, you know, you guys didn't preach about medicine and whatnot. It wasn't a supermarket. Yeah. Um, but I remember there was this one lady I got in a conversation with and it was such a deep, great conversation. And then suddenly she said, oh, yeah, yeah. Like I was speaking to an AI last week and I was like, eh. or no, no, sorry, not AI, sorry, ET last week. And they were saying, and I was like, ET, ET, extraterrestrial. Did she I've just, seen the movie. Did she just say, but I was, the way she said it was so um, natural that I didn't even question <laughs> Like I, I, well, I was holding back question, and then I realized, oh no, no, she really was talking about an alien. And I was like, are you, are you speaking about an alien in like very regular terms? She's like, yeah, of course. I was talking to this person last week, and I was like, wow, this, this is amazing. <laughs> How did this conversation go from fruit yeah. and veg deep into ETs? So. I've made so many friends from the vegetable shop from just talking to people. Like most so of our many friends, most of our friends. Yeah, actually, they probably came from the shop. Like the shop is just such. And but I guess that's the capacity of small talk of just consistently making small talk with people. And you picked up most of your women that way as well, didn't you? Uh, back in the day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah of course. Yeah. Uh, okay. Should we talk about the podcast? We should. Okay. Okay. This week is wonderful, and I really loved Guy. So this is Professor Guy. Claxton. Do you want to give the spiel about it? Okay, yeah. Guy is a double professor of psychology. He got firsts in Cambridge. He's written over 30 books in terms of psychology. And his main thing is about teaching us to learn better. Because and lifelong learning, how to become lifelong learners. Yeah, he's, he's, that, that's been his whole focus over the last, his whole 50 years of, you know, as a professor, as an educator, as, you know, and he, and he really specialized in terms of edu becoming a lifelong learner as individuals, but also in terms of schools, how to create environments where they cultivate us not to be passive and not to be, you know, um, docile or overly achievement focused. Yeah, to become curious and resilient and creative and all these characteristics we want. And he kind of, how do we put these in terms of schools and create these cultures in the same way in terms of organizations, in families, and each of us as individuals, because obviously we've got, conditioning via school and conditioning via our lifetimes but how can we unlearn these and how can we become better learners because it pre predicates and influences so much of what we do on a daily basis so guy's got a very well-rounded person he's a serious meditator that's you know he's been meditated with uh, like osho, osho and from wild, wait 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 from wild wild country for anyone who watched that netflix series remember yeah. osho yeah, yeah yeah he spent seven yeah. years in india with him so he's very like he's not just a professor with many degrees and masters and all sorts of things and I not just in india, books. i think it was in london okay well any don't let the truth get in the way of good stories yeah. sorry, <laughs> <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> right, but this is meant to be the truthful factual bit anyway <laughs> 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 Guys, Guys wonderful. We had a great chat. Stick with it. It's so good. Yeah, He's magnificent. Very philosophical and very useful. I, I could sit and talk to him all day. Wonderful man. So anyway, we before we give you Guy Claxton, we just want to tell you about our new book is out. We'd love your support. It's all about the two thing, two biggest things in terms of climate change is 
The single biggest thing you can do as an individual is to eat more fruit and veg. This book is called The Veg Box. The second biggest thing you can do is to wait less, waste less of your food. We've picked the 10 most used vegetables in Ireland and the UK. We've done them 10 ways using only 10 ingredients or, or less. less. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very practical. It's really simple. Instead yeah, we love it. There'll be a link down below to pre-order it. And by pre-ordering, you really do help get it out there. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, so without further ado, we give you Guy Claxton. Woo! Enjoy. Have a great time. Bye. Oh, we've really enjoyed, we really enjoyed uh, re- kind of just listening to a lot of interviews with you there this morning and yesterday. You're brilliant. Really love, love the... The variety of interests. I love that your whole spiritual spiritual. Yeah, yeah. Can, can I even tell you a story to kick it off? So, <laughs> so it was. Uh, this was back back twenty. We were twenty one. So it was twenty one years ago. We ended up in Boston, Massachusetts, sitting at Vipassana meditation uh, retreat, and Steve had already done one, and he was serving a couple of them, and I ended up sitting one. So this is a Vipassana retreat is a ten day meditation retreat for anyone who doesn't know. A silent meditation retreat. And I was sitting there and you, you can't talk to anyone. You can't have your phone. You can't have books or whatever. And so it really is silent and you meditate for 12 hours a day or something. And I was sitting beside someone who you don't make eye contact with, obviously, and you don't talk to. And over the course of 10 days, spending hours beside this person, you form a relationship without making eye contact, without talking to them. And afterwards, um, when we were allowed to talk, we ended up, you know, becoming good friends. And he was, at the time I was 21 and he was like 75. He was from upstate Boston. And we ended up becoming really good friends. And me and Steve went up to stay with him and his wife for a number of days. And he was very into Ram Dass. And he gave me an original copy of Be Here Now, which was tattered. Like it was a really old copy of it. And uh, which inspired me to go down to Lama Foundation where Ram Das had written Be Here Now. I ended up spending time down there. And uh, yeah, so that's my story. Good story, Dave. Thanks, Steve. Well, I'm trying to mix it very, up. The, very good. I remember the, about the first Vipassana retreat I sat. Someone said, I, this is where I thought you were going with your story, Dave. Someone said, it's like, you know, you don't, you're not, you don't make eye contact. You don't hear anything. But over the course of the 10 days, you always pick out one person who really irritates the bejesus out of you. <laughs> Definitely. And that's, and that's but you don't know anything about them. You don't know what they said, what their voice sounds like or anything. So you have a Vipassana vendetta against <laughs> this, against this one person. And there's always someone else that you fall in love with. You have a Vipassana romance as well. <laughs> in your head. <laughs> All in your head. All in your head. And then, then, then finally at the end, when everybody's speaking, you know, you could be bitterly disappointed or like you're completely wrong about the person. But the fact that they sniffed a lot really kind of got up your nose. I, I had someone <laughs> like that that just bothered me for the whole 10 days. And then I went and chatted with them at the end and they were the nicest person ever. And I felt so guilty. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's, nothing, it, it's nothing to do with them. It's nothing to no. do with the person. Exactly. No, yeah, yeah. But on that topic, there was two two people who we greatly admire. Like one was Ram Das and one was Osho. And these are two great spiritual teachers. And somehow within your life, these were two people that you had physical teach physical multiple experiences with them, which kind of I think I don't know if they had uh, they must have had some serious impact on your life in many ways. Could you tell a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's interesting uh, that you've picked on two of my teachers. One of my one of my teachers, Buddhist teacher, a, a really really good friend of mine, a guy called Stephen Batchelor, um, used to used to say um, that I was a bit of a spiritual autograph hound because I'd been, you know, it's like you named anybody who said, oh yeah, I sat with them, or I did, oh yeah, I did a weekend with him, 
or I did, you know, I sort of, yeah, yeah, I started with her. So definitely Ramdas and Osho, both of their autographs I've got in my, <laughs> in my autograph hound book. Um, I only ever sat one retreat with Ramdas. That was in, a, in an agricultural college in Devon, in South Devon. Um, when Schumacher, was it Schumacher there was, College? There was when I, I was working at Schumacher College, I think at the time, or was I, was it after, yeah, it would have been round about then. Anyway, I, yeah, that's where I was living down there when I was, I worked at Schumacher College. Um, yeah, and I, <clears throat> I went off to this retreat with Ram Das, and he was wonderful. Yeah. He was good, like, like completely, interestingly, he and Osho, I, Osho, I don't know, I never said or never had anything to, to say about Ram Das, but I remember I asked Ram Das, I said that I had been a follower of Osho, a sannyasin, for, uh, for about seven or eight years, and that I felt kind of, you know, kinship with both of them. And, you know, what did, what did he think about Osho? And he said, uh, I don't have any, I can't remember exactly what he said, but something like, I don't have any business with him or something like there. You know, there are some people who you have a natural affinity with and some people who you don't. And he said, you know, like he didn't have any connection with Osho. So that's, wow. you know, fair enough. So, you know, all these, all these cool cats don't necessarily hang out with each other. Okay. Like, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. pretty interesting. Well, interesting. well really. one thing I'd love to jump, cha totally change now to a whole other uh, vein of conversation. One line that I heard you, it, it came up in a podcast that you were doing was a sense character counts more than exam results. And I think this is something that embodies so much of your philosophy to education, which I really admire. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about that. Sure. Well, you're keeping me on my toes. You're hopping around a bit, aren't you? Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> we have ADA, ADA, attention deficit advantage, <laughs> as coined by Doug Evans. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, th that's putting it a bit 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 strongly. I think it's character and uh, and results. I I mean I think my personal view is that the education of character. Martin Luther. I think it's Martin Luther King. There's a quote from him somewhere or other about it's like character plus achievement or something. It's like it's it's both of those things are important. You can't sort of knock the fact that there are. Education is partly about you know literacy and numeracy and learning some useful general knowledge. <clears throat> it's not that there's anything. <coughs> excuse me. Not that there's anything particularly out of the job. And I think that um, I mean, and there is there is research. There's a lot of um, uh, research, particularly from a, from a guy called James Heckman, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist showing that actually what count, what makes a difference in terms of your success in life uh, as defined in all kinds of different ways, like objective measures, like how, do you own your own house? Or have you been in trouble with the law? Uh, do you take drugs regularly? Have kids been in trouble with the law? Or uh, uh, as well as, you know, how satisfied are you? And what are the quality of your relationships? And blah, 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 blah. And it's, it turns out that if like, you look at someone who's 40 or 50 years old, you can, you can forget their school results. That, that they, they don't seem to make any difference or not very much difference. But it's whether, you, whether when you were 11 years old, you can predict 
someone's happiness with life, someone's feeling of like whether their life is being successful or not, and these objective measures, not in terms of their academic results, but in terms of their sort of qualities of mind like perseverance, self-discipline, uh, collaboration, being a, like a convivial uh, colleague with other people, uh, empathy, tolerance for diversity, uh, ability to maintain focus, uh, to concentrate uh, on things. But these are the things that make a difference in the course of the, of the course of the lifespan. And if those are the sort of the more powerful predictors, <clears throat> then it seems to me that you know young people deserve. If education is about giving them a flying start on life, then it has to be about helping them cultivate uh, those like you know lots of different names for them. People all around the world are interested in this territory: first century skills, non-cognitive skills, soft skills, habits of mind, positive learning. Uh, dispositions, character strengths, what have you. It's all the same territory, but different people are coming at it uh, in different ways and using different language for it. But it's like, I think there's a big search going on around the world at the moment for how do we configure education? How do we configure schools so that they help people, you know, do the reading, writing, and the arithmetic and the general knowledge and the what have you, but they do it in a way that builds these positive dispositions. So how did so the question for I spent a lot of my time trying to figure out the practical implications of this. So what do you do? How do you teach history a bit differently if you're if you're teaching people not just you know the history of the famine or the history of the Tudors, depending on your your country, but you're also teaching history in a way that builds young people's ability to put themselves in other people's shoes and to be able to adopt multiple perspectives on life. So it's like, the, it's like, it's what I call results plus. Like, you know, yeah, yeah, you can teach them the history in a way that gets them the exam results, but history is an ideal vehicle for, you know, how do you put yourself in the mind and heart situation, the body of someone who lived in a very different time from you? That's quite a stretch. It's like stretching your, as I say, stretching your empathy muscles. It's, it's stretching your ability to do that. Um, and if you do that, then people, you know, according to the research, people are going to be happier, right? Because your relationships tend to prosper more if you're able to, you know, to see your wife's point of view rather than getting just plugged in to your own sense of righteousness when you're having an argument. So these are kind of practical benefits like attention deficit is an advantage for you too so you know um resilience and stickability and concentration and so on are generally acknowledged to be advantages for other people whereas in a lot of school a lot of schools it's like kids are serving an apprenticeship not in being adventurous and resilient and self-disciplined but in being passive and compliant and doing what you're told, and uh, turning up on time. Totally uh, agree. You know, and th th those attitudes turn out not to be the ones that are up the top of the list of powerful predictors of success in life. So it's quite a struggle to see how you could turn around the culture of a school so that um, 
so that you're paying more attention to the to character. Now, over in Ireland, I've had a little bit to do with the shift in the school curriculum in Ireland. I was uh, involved a little bit in the change in what they call, I love this terminology, you have the junior cycle and the senior cycle. They're like two different kinds of sport sports bikes or something yeah. that people are, are getting ready for life. And, and you're at least in name, I don't know how successful these curricula are being, but at least the intention behind them is good to shift the attention just from, you know, they're, they're getting the good marks and learning the knowledge to also developing these skills as well. <clears throat> so good luck to you in Ireland. We're doing a whole lot better in that front than we are in the, in the UK, that's for sure. And what country do you think, like, you know, you know the way, okay, so education has changed massively over the last 50 years and particularly over the last 20 with the rise of the internet and the kind of democratization of information, really. You know, if someone's very curious and, you know, has a curious kind of disposition, they could learn anything. Like you could learn, like you could learn, there's very little you couldn't learn on the internet in terms of absolute skills. So I'm just wondering when you think of like the broader sense of education, aside from just exam results, are there any countries or kind of areas where you go, well, this type of school is doing a brilliant job or this country is doing brilliant. Because you often hear people going, oh, well, the education system in Finland, they start at eight and it tends to be a better system. Or like, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? Or or you hear Steiner schools, or you hear these other type of um, type of schools. What is your thoughts on that at a whole? I think it's like somebody said, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And I think this, like it, that's very true of education at the moment. So I don't know of a whole jurisdiction. I think you mentioned Finland. I think Finland is doing better than many other countries, certainly a whole lot better than England. Um, New Zealand is doing interesting things. Australia is doing interesting things. But at the moment, we're in a stage where it's very patchy. You know, it's like different, the schools vary enormously, as they do in England, as I'm sure they do in Ireland as well. Schools very enormously and even actually within schools the variation between what's going on in one classroom and the other next door classroom is often enormous in terms of the ethos in terms of the quality of what's going on in those different rooms so you see like pockets of of uh, progress are being made like i've worked with uh, a whole lot of schools i can't tell you how many all around the world um, and they're, uh, you know, they make good progress. If you have this good school leader, the school leaders are really critical in this. If you have a good school leader, like someone who is really, who really understands the necessity and the possibility of shifting the focus and shifting the, the culture of the school to embrace these, the cultivation of these characteristics. Uh, the school leader is absolutely critical. We've been worked with some schools that have made terrific progress. I could I could point you at several around England. And then when the school leader moves on, a new person comes in, they're not necessarily a bad person, but they just don't get it. They don't understand what's done and they can lose what the benefit that has been made previously very quickly if they don't kind of really march to the same tune you know so i don't think there's a single country that i could pick out and say they've cracked it lots of countries are like think they've cracked it on paper but changing the the the, the vision changing the written prescription changing the curriculum 
like with your senior and junior cycle. That's the easy bit. Changing teachers' day-to-day habits, that's the hard bit. And I don't know any country that's really cracked that. Finland, I would say, will be probably the best. And my my favorite example is the way Finnish schools have realized that um, this is only hearsay evidence from reading newspapers and what have you. But they've realized that helping young people uh, come to terms with or learn how to deal with fake news and misinformation is a really important life skill. That a kind of critical literacy when you're reading the newspaper or when you're online or when you're watching the evening news on television. So they're now their whole system. It's like they're teaching. You know, how do you spot fake news? Uh, like you know, every day in Finnish primary schools, they're kind of you know looking at what's on the news. They're analyzing different different uh, examples. Wow. They're just learning to stretch their muscles because they've decided this is, you know, this is a really critical life skill. Apparently, you know, you can go into any Finnish primary school and chat to a six or seven year old and she'll be able to tell you the difference between disinformation, misinformation and malinformation. And she can <laughs> give you examples of all of them and she'll be able to tell you how to spot those things uh, and how to kind of defend yourself against them. Ernest, the writer Ernest Hemingway was once asked, what's the, what's the most important tool for a, for a great writer? And he said, all you need is a built-in shockproof crap detector. <laughs> and that's, wow. you know, and that, that's not, I think these days, that's not just what you need to be a good writer. It's what you need to be a safe human being in this world where, where we're surrounded by crap. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the Finns have shown that it's perfectly possible to weave crap detection into history, into science, into English language, into whatever you're doing, whatever you're learning, whatever you're studying at school. You can also be sharpening and strengthening your ability to be a good crap detector. I like Craig. that. Yeah. yeah, I think that's brilliant. And I love the emphasis on looking at the broader concept when we did history it was remembering dates and remember facts and remember things whereas i really appreciate the fact that you're looking at how it can stretch our empathy muscle or how it can create more character because modern day society there's so little emphasis at least in my own romantic mind i imagine back in traditional times there was an emphasis on having a strength sense of character having discipline having you know showing up and perseverance and build those resilience in and have a curious mind whereas i'm not sure as you said the school system in so many cases really cultivates these things. And I, I really admire that you're, you know, when I did a bit of research this morning, your kind of emphasis is to try to create a system that really celebrates these, that cultivates a strong character, disciplined mind, where you can actually reach more aliveness, where you can literally come out of school feeling like, I have an idea who I am. I have an idea what I'm interested in. I'm up for life, even on shit days, excuse my language. But, you know, even when I don't feel like it, I can still go for it. Yeah. I want yeah, to that absolutely. Skill. Yeah, absolutely. Ab- absolutely. But the, the trick is, I mean, a lot of my work over the last, uh, since I wrote a book called Building Learning Power in, t- in 2002, uh, yeah, 2002, um, a, a lot of my work has been how you take like almost everybody agrees with what you said, Steve. Yeah. But but there are relatively few schools or jurisdictions 
but understand what it takes to turn your school into a systematic, reliable, powerful incubator of those characteristics and how you do that alongside the traditional business of school. Because no school is going to prosper if you say, I sometimes say when I'm talking to groups of teachers, you know, I don't think I would get very far if I came into you this morning and said, I've come to tell you about a fantastic approach to teaching will it help your kids become more compassionate, more focused, more adventurous, more better team players, better able to concentrate, better crap detectors. The only thing we haven't figured out yet is to how to do that without the results, the traditional results plummeting. So don't worry, you know, we can build character, but the results will go through the floor. Nobody, you know, you wouldn't get very far. That wouldn't be a very good sales pitch. So you have to think in terms of doing both, I think. And that's tricky, but it's doable. You know, the work that I and my colleagues and lots of other research groups around the planet have been doing is to show that this, I mean, I think the evidence shows, as I say, I have three words that I think about this, that this is absolutely desirable and necessary. It's, 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 it's possible because, you know, you've, I've seen this done in any school from, you know, high status, rich kids, fee-paying schools to, you know, tiny little urban primary schools in lots of different countries. I know it's absolutely possible. So it's desirable and it's possible, but it's difficult. It yeah. requires real insight and real determination by the teachers and by the leadership of the school. Uh, for example, you have to get the parents on board. You have to explain, explain to them what you're doing. You have to think about tinkering with the curriculum. You'd have to tweak the nature of your assessment system in the school. So my work has been to try and unpick in detail what are all the little things that teachers have control over which they can tweak in their classroom so that the culture shifts from a culture of passivity and compliance and achievement to a culture of exploration and adventurousness and collaboration and insight and resilience. That's, a, that's the trick. It's like, so, so how do I do it? And what are some what examples? What are some examples of like, you know, so you've been to lots of schools and you've put it in as case studies and you've shown that this can work. Like, what are some examples of things that you, like, because you talk about the small little tweaks, it's not Even revelations. one little thing that I absolutely loved hearing you say, what you said, language was so important. Rather than going, what are the colours of the rainbow? Why not ask, what could the colours of a rainbow be? And suddenly, <laughs> like your mind is lit up. Like, I loved when you said that. I thought that's brilliant. <laughs> well, you have you have done your homework on me, boys. That's, that's, yeah, that's very brilliant. Good. I love that. Yeah. And that's, you know, and it's like, that's a very good example, Steve, because like the research evidence from a woman called Ellen Langer, who's uh, retired now, she was a prof at Harvard uh, for a long time, shows that that little shift in language, I think language, linguists call it something like a shift from the indicative tense to the subjunctive tense. Indicative language is this is what it, there are seven colors in the rainbow. This is what they're factual. So, yeah, it's like incontrovertible. If I talk to you in his language, you know, you can't argue with it. There's no invitation to think. You just have to know it, right? If it's true, that, that's all it is. This is what it is. Whereas the minute you say it could be, you engage a different set in my language of, of learning muscles. 
you know, you become more inquisitive, you become more imaginative, you become more critical. And so more uh, yeah, I love the. Uh, Sorry, more playful. More, more playful. Absolutely. Suddenly you're like, wow, what colors can I see? You know, yeah, yeah, my yeah. mind goes off yeah, to all yeah. sorts of weird places, which I think is yeah, that's exactly the fun. So. Right. And then, you know, if you absolutely have to, at the end of the lesson, you can tell the kids that there is a worldwide convention about saying what the colors of the rainbow really are called. But you have to say, that's a convention. You explain to them, Isaac Newton dreamt the seven colors in the rainbow up one afternoon when he was going to have to give a talk. And he and he was looking at a rainbow, and he for him, him and his religious uh, framework, seven was a magical number. So he had to have seven colors. He could only see five, but he invented indigo and one other in order to have seven. It's like it's a, it's not a fact; it's a convention. So and kids can kids can cope with that. They, you know, kids don't freak out when you tell when you start to teach them that a lot of our knowledge is a fallible construction of human thought. You know, and I they're think, not I think back. I think the I think the more you can learn that where, you know, the way like Steve Jobs has a quote where he says that like, you know, the world isn't completely black and white and the rules of the world were made by just normal people like you. And we've mm-hmm. just like we can reframe them with every time like it's it's almost how we can cultivate that curiosity that we aren't limited by all the the reality around us. Yeah, I don't sure. Express that I mean, we well. are limited by reality. You know, everybody. I mean, ev- ev- everything is a theory, but some theories are better than others. You know, some <laughs> some theories. Work okay, good. Well. I like you that. Know? I prefer that. I prefer <laughs> that. Okay. Guys, guys is more clever. Okay, you're you're better. Okay. <laughs> you know, I could I could be absolutely free to invent my own Guy Claxton brand of physics, but it's probable that my airplanes would drop out of the sky. Okay. You know, <laughs> so you know there are there are reality imposes some constraints, but within that, absolutely, we're free to imagine. Yeah, and maybe it's maybe it's that mindset where it's like it's cultivating that curiosity and that kind of free thinking, like which goes in conjunction with critical thinking because it's kind of seeing that we can expand things and we can improve things, like whether it's our own situation or certain things within society or whatnot, rather than as you said a system that cultivates passivity and just exam focused and apathy, you know, it dulls our, it dulls our aliveness and our curiosity, you know, which. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think you have to, sorry, Steve, can I just kind of finish up on that? Absolutely. Sorry. I keep jumping across Um, you. Because I think some people get sort of very excited about creativity and imagination and so on quite rightly, but you can be a very creative, imaginative torturer. You can be a very creative, imaginative oppressor. So I think, you know, in in my school, I think you need to teach some kind of moral framework. You need to have a sense of morality that goes along with creativity. You know, unbridled creativity has been the source of a lot of ills in the world, as well as a lot of benefits in the world. So I think we need to be a bit mindful about, you know, creativity for what end or resilience in doing what you know you you need to say is this a valuable outcome is this a wholesome outcome that people are going for um rather than just giving people the tools to become more inventive um inquisitors or torturers or murderers or whatever else you 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 sprinkle the seeds of something. Can I ask something there? No, you're because it was you said in my school, and I, on that on that very phrase, I'd love to go. Okay, guy like guy, guy Claxton, here we go. 
let's have some fun here. So imagine you're a school. So Steve and my brother here, he's always dreamt of starting a school. He's been saying this since he's like 21. He has, and you still haven't done it, but it's, it's quite likely it'll happen. So Guy, if it's, Guy, you're going to say for imagination's sake, you and Steve are starting a school. How would you do it to cultivate where you do get the curriculum, where you do get the exam results? Because obviously you follow a curriculum, but also you cultivate these soft skills. Like what are a couple of the things which you can apply? Oh, uh. Well, it's, it's, ah, oh, that was a good thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think in the way I think about it, it's like there are a lot, there's no sort of magic bullet. It's getting a lot of it. That's why I like talk about little tweaks. It's getting a lot of little things right in the classroom. So things like talking, using would be language rather than is language. And I just, I just want to come back to that in a minute because people might get the wrong idea about that. They might say, but you can't use could be language in mathematics. You know, there are truths, you know, six fours are 24. Don't mess about with me. You know, that's like, it's true. But then I say, you know, yeah, yes, it's absolutely true. You know, it's not like could be, you can't be playful about everything. Otherwise your planes will fall out of the sky, right? But you could, you could go into a class of kids and say to them, what could six fours be? And don't give me a wrong answer. And they sit there and they kind of look at you with their mouths open for a bit. They say, well, six fours, they could be, it could be... Uh, 24 elephants. Uh, it could be 24 elephants. It could be half of 48. It could be 444,444. It could be the number of legs on six horses. It could be right, and now we're now we're thinking, right? Now we're thinking we're not being stupid, we're not thinking wrong things, but we've opened up our maths. Remember a friend of mine saying that he was a head teacher, he had to go in and, and look after a maths lesson. He'd never taught maths in his life before, but the teacher was taken ill. And in desperation, he said to the class, the answer is five. What's the question? He said that had they had the most brilliant lesson. Just incredibly creative, incredibly thoughtful. So it's like those little elements, I think. First of all, you have to to be really clear about what it is that you're trying to achieve. And you have to be unapologetic about the fact that your school has a character agenda, that it has a moral framework. So we have a sense of this is better than that. You have to be unashamed about that because that's what education is. Education is shaping kids' lives shaping their knowledge shaping their skills shaping their character for good or ill so you have to be upfront about that then you have to be i think you have to be really clear about what are the key characteristics that you want to want to home in on then you have to have a sense of what progression looks like in the development of those characteristics because resilience in uh someone i've just been watching a bit of the bit of the Winter Olympics. I've been watching the curling. Uh, Ooh, you know. Oh, lucky you. Oof. <laughs> How exciting. Curling, my favorite. <laughs> it's really, it's really weird. It is actually good. I remember watching my mom one day. <laughs> but like to be, to be res- that resilient, to get that good of something, you know, is that one of the characteristics you want? Is critical thinking one of the characteristics you want? Is, uh, our empathy and imagination, the things you want. So you have to be really clear on what those things are. And then you have to think hard 
about how you weave the cultivation of those things in every day. You can't just what ha what 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 happens with a lot of schools where they went wrong is they just stick up posters, right? It's like schools got very excited about something called growth mindset, which yeah. is you know the idea that you that, that you can get better at things that if you if you put the effort in you can get better at them. A lot of schools just stuck up posters in the classroom, like you know saying to kids. Don't say you can't do it. Say you can't do it yet, right? Now that's quite a neat shift, but if you merely just you know turn it into a slogan, nothing much is going to change. But if you change the culture of the classroom so that the kids understand that it's really cool to be challenged, like there are interesting challenges in the classroom, and it's fun to think really hard. And to see if you can figure something out for yourself, rather than sitting there passively waiting to be told the right answer. If you can create that climate, then the growth mindset takes care of itself. Then kids are naturally they want to be adventurous. They're more resilient. They collaborate better, and so on. So it's like setting up the system in the school so that what goes on in the school naturally recruits kids' energies. So that in the course of trying to get difficult things done, they naturally build these mental muscles that go along with it. So you sort of come at it sideways rather than coming at it head on. You can talk about these things explicitly. That helps a bit, but it doesn't do the job. The job you have to do is to shift the practices, the cultural practices of the school. So that, like one school that I work with, which is kind of high-achieving boys' grammar school in the outskirts of London, so that you know by the time you've worked for three years or so, all the boys—it was a boys' school—all the boys in that school got the idea that digging deep in a subject was a cool thing to do, right? Not just sitting there with your hand up saying, "Is this going to be on the test, sir?" Right, but always like wanting to go the extra mile, having that degree of resilience and inquisitiveness, now was just part of the atmosphere that all the kids in that school lived and breathed. And that takes time and commitment, determination, and a kind of meticulous sense of where we're heading on the part of the people who had designed the schools and who are running it. So I don't know if that helps, Steve. Yeah, yeah. I guess I guess it's Dan Thomas, the tea, like you've got to start with, like when I think of culture, I think of the the custodians of the culture, which is the leadership, whether it's the teachers or the principal or in a business, it has to be the, you know, the people at the top table, the people running the business, because those are the custodians of the culture and it permits yeah. down from them and their very behavior and what's important is dictated by them. I love the way what you suggested yeah, yeah. wasn't. This is, this, is, this, this is one of our recent books, which is exactly the pairing of for school skill. leaders. The learning yeah. approach for school just... leader. Learning very power cool. approach to school leaders. And this is like a collection of stories from school leaders who've been successful at, at creating this culture shift in their schools. So it's just like war stories, like what worked well, what didn't work well, what alternatives you had, what I wish I'd done slightly differently um, that would have saved time getting there. So it's a kind of, uh, it, it's a manual full of practical ideas about how you actually go about creating this shift in your school. Jeez, your work that. is so valuable. It really, really is. is. So like guy, it really, for, really for is. listening who isn't at school themselves and doesn't have kids in school and kind of goes, 
I'm a bit stuck. Like, I'm not really learning anything. I don't feel as curious, as interesting. How, for anyone listening, can they suddenly engage that to move from this sense of passivity, this maybe they they went to a school similar to the ones that, you know, didn't necessarily go to our school guy yet. They haven't been to our school yet. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, they're, they're feeling a bit stuck. What are things that people can apply to their daily life to suddenly to start kind of moving beyond this apathy, this passivity, this kind of, you know, achievement oriented mindset, as opposed to moving into more where there's this, this possibility, this hope, there's yeah, curiosity, there's yeah. engagement. Yeah. Well, um, again, there's no, you know, there's no magic bullet, Steve. There's no kind of, you know, yeah. one thing. I think, you know, I would always start my article of faith is that everybody, even the most awkward kid in the, in the school, has one area in their life where they are a passionate, powerful learner. They already have it. It might be something you disapprove of. It's very likely to be something you don't know about if you're a teacher, but everybody has that. It's like, you know, it might be football. It might be a dance move. It might be a computer game. It might be something or other. I loved in your case when you were you went to study chemistry, wasn't it? And yeah, then yeah. You had to do. Michael when Sayer. you talk about that, how you went to study psychology just by chance, or yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think it was went, that you went to study chemistry, and then in year two you became a. You know, you figured you weren't that good. Because that was a good example of literally what you were saying, wasn't it? That you went yeah, to study yeah. chemistry. Well, that was just. I mean, it, it was that was just a complete accident. Actually, it was like you know, in my you know, I went to Cambridge which, bless it, it's like it has this, when you go to read, to do science, read, study science, you have to study the whole range. It's like you have to do what's called the natural sciences, tripos, which means you have to do a lot of different subjects. So, and I was all set, I was all set, like I was on the course to major in like in um, chemistry in my final year. But in the, in the first year, I kind of, you know, I sort of potted on and did all right. Second year, yeah, you had to do two dollops of chemistry and one dollop was something else that you hadn't done in the first year. And I decided that I'd do experimental psychology. I didn't know anything about it. But I just, just between you and me, the girls were prettier. Who, who, who <laughs> we, we opted were, first. Yeah, we were prone to that type of thinking too. <laughs> <laughs> that type of decision making. <laughs> no, no disrespect to females who, who, uh, who are interested in chemistry. But that was just my, my personal experience. So, and I discovered at the end of the second year that I was, chemistry had completely got away from me. It was dull. It was difficult. I couldn't understand it. It's like facts were coming at me so fast. I couldn't digest them. I couldn't integrate them. It was stressful. And I did really badly um, at the end of the second year. And, that, and so I decided, and really well in, in psychology, it's like it was, I'd found sort of fresh air to breathe. You could have opinions. You could weigh up evidence. You know, you had a chance of understanding what was going on, whereas it had just chemistry had just got away from me. So I, so I, at, at the, when we got the exam results at the end of the second year, um, I went to see if I could shift into psychology in the third uh, for the for the for the third year, um, and I wasn't I wasn't allowed to because the the course was full. So I spent this. Uh, uh, I had to stay there during the summer to do sort of extra chemistry if I was going to go on to do that. But I spent most of the chatting up the secretary of the admissions tutor in in the psychology department, 
And finally, she got so we, I was we were I was just flirting with her and pestering <laughs> her all all the time. And finally, she persuaded her boss to let me in. And out of such things, lives are changed. You know, it's right. like you know. Of course, if I if I hadn't if I hadn't been able to flirt successfully with I'm trying to remember with Carol, I can't remember her surname. Carol, somebody. Good um, memory, guy. She was she was she was a lovely girl. She went off and married a, a, another a psychology lecturer, unfortunately, you know. And she, I kind of caught her attention well enough for her to pester. I remember the name of the admission student. He was called Alan Watson, and she finally persuaded him to to, to let me in. And the rest, as they say, is history. I love wow. thirty bucks later and a doctor so, of psychology not, later. You know, <laughs> that's just that's just good luck, you know. That's not something I could say. You know, this is a recipe for success. But what I would say, come back to what I was saying before, Steve, is, you know, focus on the one thing in your life where you are already resilient, imaginative, resourceful, collaborative, whatever it might be, and just kind of recognize that maybe in some way, the narrow area of your life, you already possess these virtues to a, to a very significant extent. And then think to yourself, you know, I have these. These are part of my treasure, treasury. My character exists, but but so far maybe it only exists in a relatively narrow area, which might exclude an awful lot of schoolwork, schooly type work. For example, you know, I'm a passionate, powerful, imaginative, resourceful learner in footy, football, but but when I walk into a maths lesson, all of that just disappears. All of it goes away. Right. So why could you not draw on those resources? Because I know you've got them because I saw you out in the rain practicing your penalty kicks, getting drowned like a rat for an hour and a half the previous evening. So I know how resilient and resourceful you are. So why don't you bring a bit of that into your maths lesson? And I remember a teacher who, who said that, had that conversation with the boy. And the boy said it's like you could see a penny dropping in his head. And the boy sort of looked at his teacher. There was a bit of a silence and he looked at his teacher. And he said, all right, sir, I'll show you. <laughs> I love it. I really right? like that. Sounds like the start yeah. of a Rocky movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. movie. <laughs> really Sylvester like Stallone yeah. in one of those. Yeah. Exactly. So I would say, in answer to your question, I would say, find where the taproot of your learning power is already. And then just see if you can grow it outwards from there. Maybe make it flourish. I love Ooh. that. That's a good metaphor, guy. I like that. Find the taproot and let it grow. Let it blossom. Let the, it the taproot yeah. of your learning. Now, great. I really yeah. think that's so practical and so um, you know Excellent. good. And I love it. I like love, on the money. You're twitching to ask a question. Yeah. I've got one as well that I'm twitching okay, I've, to ask. I've got well. one. Um, often <laughs> professors. I remember someone saying to me this now, and I'm sure it was just anecdotal. Someone was saying often professors just see their body to carry their brain around to different places that their body needs to be. Uh, and I, That's I really right. admire the great, the great man called Sir Ken Robinson. Oh, yeah. 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 He was brilliant. That died, died a year ago. Yeah, His perspective and education. And he was, he was, he was also a great friend of mine. He and I, when we were young and disreputable, we lived in a squat together in London. Wow. Me, his, me his, and the great, the great Sir Ken Robinson. He was a wonderful character. His yes, TED talk was incredible. Professors just look on their their body as a way of getting their minds to a meeting. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And I really admire the fact, that I wrote it down, even the words you described with a clever word for it, embodied cognition, that semantics yeah. is in the flesh. 
And I wonder if you could talk about this because people see intelligence and we often say, I remember, did you ever watch that uh, documentary called? Uh, My Octopus Teacher. My Octopus Teacher. And it's, it's on Netflix. Oh, I, you, know, you know, I saw, I watched about half of it and then I don't know why I didn't, I never watched the second part. But yeah, ah. it was brilliant. I was brilliant. And I thought it was amazing that they have eight hearts, I think. Was there eight brains in each of their, in no, their they, limbs? They have, their brain is spread amongst their eight limbs and they, they actually brain functions much better when they move. And I often say, or you often say that, I think I'm an octopus. Like, I just need to move. Like, then my brain works better. I'm just not good at sitting still. And that's part of our AD, our attention deficit advantage. Uh, but I wonder if you no, can no. talk about how intelligence is embodied, that intelligence is in our bodies and it's in our movement, that it's not just in this intellect, in this cortex, yeah, in our, in sure. our head. Sure. Well, Ken, I think it's in that TED talk where, where Ken tells the story of a little girl about seven or eight years old who was having trouble in school and her parents took her to a psychologist. Do you remember this story? Yeah, yeah. And, and they they were chatting and then the psychologist was smart enough to say, Gillian, I just need to talk to your mummy outside the room. So I'll just, you know, I'll do what, don't worry, we're just going to leave you for a few minutes. And they walked out of the room and he turned the radio on to a music station. And the minute they were out of the room, she got up and started dancing. And they were looking at her. They, they peeked back at, at this little girl through the door. And the psychologist turned to her mother and said, don't, there's nothing wrong with Gillian, Mrs. Lynn. She's not, it's not, it's not, she's not ADHD or anything like that. She's a dancer. Take <laughs> her to a dance school. And they and they and she did. The mother took her to a dance school, and and Gillian later on in life said, "I couldn't believe it." She said, "When I walked through the door, the room was full of people like me, people who had to move to think." <laughs> and she went on to become Dame Gillian Lynn, the choreographer of Cats and many wow. other famous things. You know, and it's like if that psychologist hadn't had that wisdom just to spot the difference, to spot the, the fact that her cognition needed to be embodied, that she had to move to think, just like a lot of sports men and women, like they say they have to move to think. Wayne Rooney once was, was interviewed once, and he said at the end of 90 minutes playing a game of football, I'm absolutely knackered. And he said, it's not the running around, it's the thinking that wears me out. Isn't that interesting? Wow. <laughs> it's just like the... You know, it's like it's the, the, the mental, it's like the combination of the of the movement and the uh, and the thinking and the cognition. So there's lots of research now. There's a great book just being published by a woman called Caroline Williams, which is just called Move Exclamation Mark. Oh my brother really, started reading it. Yeah, my brother started oh, reading it. He was talking really about it. interesting and very accessible, but just lots of really interesting research showing how important move, movement is. You know, even my, my college, when I was doing my PhD, the college had a great big garden behind it. And there was a path that ran all the way around the edge of this garden. And it was called the Philosopher's Walk. That's <laughs> nice. It's like something out of Harry Potter. Because even, even philosophers need to move to think, apparently. It's like, nice. you know, so it's like you would always see them, pairs of philosophers earnestly talking to each other whilst they were walking around this this park. with their hands behind their back with lofty with their thoughts. hands behind their backs have you seen that lovely picture of the two men it's like in new york in the 1950s two men walking down the street with their hands behind their back and a little boy following them down the street also with his hands behind his back like you know <laughs> that's 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 the way to be a grown-up man so he's like this, this, this he's little emulating lad browsers. <laughs> i like that. that's excellent funny. So yes, so there's lots of now, lots of really interesting research now 
showing that there's a much closer relationship between mind and body than people have thought for a while. A lot of indigenous people understand this close connection between mind and body perfectly well. But in the sort of quote unquote Western tradition, ever since, you know, going back to Plato, the body's had a bit of a rough time. It's like the body is treated as, as a bit sort of, you know, just a way of getting your mind to a meeting or, you remember Francis, St. Francis of Assisi used to refer to his body as brother ass. Brother right? ass. Which is, which is like, you know, getting your, getting, your, getting your mind to a retreat, right? It's like, you know, the body gets denigrated. The body is corrupt. The body is dirty. The body is emotional. The body dies. The body is unreliable. Whereas, you know, if you're doing, if you're learning mathematics or geometry or something like that, it's pure and incorruptible and eternal, and it's closer to God. So we've had it with, you know, the body's had a bit of a rough ride in Western civilization. And I think, you know, we're coming to the realization that we've, we've been missing a trick and that actually paying more attention to the role that the body plays in, in all kinds of intelligent behavior, all kinds of thinking. So for, I mean, there's, there's really interesting research which shows that people's body awareness, their ability to sense what's going on in their own bodies is a powerful predictor of the quality of decisions that they make when they're trading on the stock market. Wow. Right? There's, a, there's an interesting correlation, not just correlation, but there seems to be some kind of causality which shows that if you're more able to listen to little intuitions, little promptings in your body, if you give them some credence, not uncritical because your intuitions can mislead you as well, but what, what I call kind of respectful skepticism about, you know, what your heart is doing, what your stomach is doing, how your muscles are feeling, whether your shoulders are tense, all of that is useful data to help you make better decisions and to help you think more effectively. So we ought to be teaching that in school, shouldn't we? You know, not just old-fashioned PE, physical, physical jerks, but why not a bit more Tai Chi or a bit more yoga? or a bit more just, you know, learn, learning to chill out and be aware of your own bodily process um, would be a pretty good idea because, you know, that's part of the engine of intelligence that, that we all have, and we neglect the different parts of the engine to our detriment, I think, and the body has a powerful role to play. After all, brains evolved to help bodies function well. You know, the brain is the servant of the body. You know, you know, if your body becomes, as your body becomes more and more complex, so the job of enabling it to function to, together, to kind of to, to function as a as an intelligent whole, becomes quite a complex job, and that's why we need a brain. So the brain is not the boss; it's not the chief executive of the body; it's the servant of the body. It's like it's the chat room, rather than the the rather than the boardroom. If you wow. like. Wow, that's such Good a different analogy. I've never heard of that. Because so many of us, and me included, can often get lost in the in the boardroom of my mind, or what I think is the boardroom or the chat room of my mind, as opposed to, you know, in recent times, I tend to think, well, you're you know, more the animal. brain of our gut is so intelligent. And that's where, to me, where our no. instinctive kind of brain comes from. And I think the more I can operate from that, the more I'm in a sense of flow, as opposed to thinking my Shatter. life. 
Yeah, yeah, rationalizing. But, it's, but I, I, I think it's both. It's not either or. It's both and. Yeah. It's like because you know the the you know the the if we're going to function well, you, your gut has to talk to your heart, has to talk to your skin, has to talk to your muscles, has to talk to the fascia that hold your muscles together, has to talk to the eyes, has to talk to the ears, like all these different you know the the what makes a a body function well is in t- is communication is internal communication and external communication being able to see what's going on around you and being able to coordinate what's going on inside you so that's the kind of basic intelligence that we're born with that ability to coordinate so all these different bits of us are sending copies of what's going on in the outposts right what's going on in the eyes what's going on in your toes what's going on in your duodenum, what's going on in the left ventricle of your heart, all of those are like posting, you know, they're like they're posting updates. tweets, up, posting updates to the kind of central information exchange in your brain. That's why that's what's going on. And they, because, you know, to some extent, they talk directly to each other, like gut talks directly to the heart. But there are all kinds of things that the brain needs to bring together all these complicated multiple sources of information and dissatisfaction and opportunity and somehow integrate them into an answer to the kind of the perennial question which is what's the best thing to do next you know that's the kind of existential question isn't it what's the best thing to do next and your brain is like trying to figure out this incredibly complicated equation with your stomach saying, what, but what about me? And your heart saying, no, I need to increase my blood pressure. And your eyes are saying, there's a tiger over there. You better climb up the nearest tree. And all of that has to get integrated in real, real time. So your, your brain and your body, your eyes and your guts and your muscles all have to talk to each other. And that's why we have a brain. That's maybe why the octopus has eight brains. Although I don't know whether it would be an advantage or a disadvantage to have eight brains. <laughs> what a great like analogy of biology. I loved that. That was beautiful. That was lovely. Love you. No, I, yeah, definitely. I want to ask something. Dave's well, I, this, this is a topic which I'm fascinated about and I'd love to get your perspective on it. And it's to do with focus. So as, as we said in Guy and Stephen's school, focus was going to be a skill amongst resilience and creativity and all these wonderful skills. And focus is a skill which in today's culture seems to be it really is a skill. Like it's a superpower in today's culture because yes, there's so much distraction and there's so much kind of demands our attention with terms with digital devices and advertising and just the expectation on one's capacity. Could you talk a little bit, a bit about focus, what's happening to it, how we can reprioritize it and how we can cultivate this skill again? Well, uh, I don't know if the fashion or the fad for mindfulness has penetrated to your bit of Ireland, but it's certainly like big news uh, all around the world. And I see meditation, one of the major benefits and functions of meditation as being able to kind of educate our attention, to enhance our ability to use our attention wisely and to use it in different ways, because we can attend in lots of different ways. Like, you know, attention is what creates our world. You know, our world is what we give our attention to. Our value system is what what drives our attention. So our ability to discriminate, to discern, to stay focused, 
or to have a, a broad attention that is kind of scatty and receptive sometimes is what you want. So I think that a big part of my my school, maybe our school, Steve, Come it's, on, going guy. A, it's going to be built Good language the there, Guy. Good language. I like it. <laughs> it was very on the cut it's and going the to be wood. It's going to be built around the education of attention because it's like there are lots of different dimensions along which our attention can vary. It can be very focused, like you can scrutinize something, you can put it under the microscope, or it can be very synoptic, very ambient. So it's like you can change the, like literally with a camera, you can change the focus of your attention from very tight and bright to very broad and dim. If you're, in, if you're, if you're um, exploring in a cave, let's say a cave by the seashore, you need two types of light. You need a dim lantern that will give you the kind of overview, like the outline of the cave. And then you also need a pencil light to zoom in on, oh, that's a really interesting fossil. Let me investigate that. So we need to be able to, to shift our, our attentional mode, to put it in a fancy way, from kind of tight focus to open focus, from inward to outward, from controlled and sustained to open and receptive to new influences or what's going on around. You know, so it's very useful to be able to, to concentrate, to stay focused, to zoom your attention in on something. But that's not smart to be in that mode the whole time. If you're a rabbit out in the middle of the field and there's a wolf coming, you know, you need to be distractible. Your attention deficit asset is a real asset in, in real life because you need to be alert to what's going on around you. You need to be capable of being distracted or you're going to be somebody's lunch. You're going to end up with somebody's lunch, right? So being able to move from inward to outward, from sustained to intermittent, from tight focus to loose focus. So I see like this, so I've created like a cube with those three different dimensions. And of the different occasions, we want to be able to have our attention operating in like different places in that cube. So sometimes sustained and focused and inward when you're meditating or when you're trying to sort out, you know, what's that nagging feeling about something? I think I've forgotten to do something. I don't know what it is. Other times you want to be open and playful and synoptic with your attention. And it is like a muscle. It's like something that you can train through mindfulness practice, through other kinds of practices. Uh, and I would definitely have that on my agenda. For me, that you're absolutely right. I think that is one of our superpowers. And particularly in the current time when we are being bombarded with, with lures, skillfully designed lures on our attention, people just clamoring for our attention, buy this, believe this, whatever it may be, our ability to, be, to have some control over what we give our attention to, to be able to pay attention rather than have our attention constantly being grabbed by things is a really powerful, particularly in the 21st century, is a really powerful asset, isn't it? And if this can be trained, then I think, you know, it's, it's a real challenge for education to say, if it can be done, we should be doing it. We should be paying more attention to it. Great. That'll be on the, the curriculum. I love it.
Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It's, almost like, it's almost like, as you said, there's that broad focus that we can focus broadly and kind of react to different things, which I think many of us are quite good at because you'll react to notifications on your phone or something else will take your attention or whatever. So that's the broad focus. But the capacity to go deep, as you're saying, with the headlight and really kind of cultivate a, a deep kind of attention where, where almost like that skill is, is rare. Like it's, it's yeah, not... Yeah. And it's almost been, yeah. society is almost like dimming that capacity within ourselves. That skill set is... is yeah, 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 yeah. And it is, it's like, and you can turn that outwards on the outside world, you know, and become a scientist or become a, you know, everybody needs that ability to kind of look what's going on out there, to be inquisitive and to be alert, to be present to what's going on out there. But then you can also, you know, it's part of the, the world of meditation that we've been talking about, is that you may also need to be able to turn that spotlight inwards uh, on your own belief system and say, you know, maybe there are bits of malware that have got installed in my own mind, which are making my life less effective, less loving, less successful in a whole variety of different ways than it might be. Maybe, maybe there are lots of bugs that have got into my own mental computing system and you know, I, I need to have a bit of a clean out, and that's for me one of the one of the major traditional functions of mindfulness is to cultivate the capacity for meticulous, sustained attention, and then to be able to turn that inwards, not on to learn something new, but on to inquire into what's already part of your belief system, even things you didn't know you believed. You know that you can turn inwards. Uh, you know, and that's the world of therapy as well as the world of spirituality, isn't it? You know, the mm. things that thing that takes people to therapy often is the fact that there, you know, there are these sort of voices at the back of your mind saying, you know, nobody will love you if you if you burn the cakes, or if you did, forgot to take the dog for the walk, or if you forgot your granny's birthday, or you're a really bad person if you sometimes feel like smacking your kid, or whatever it might be. You know, and then these bits of malware, these gremlins at the back of your mind exacerbate all of that, blow it up. But the next thing you know, it's like you're miserable and you shut yourself away from everybody and you might kill yourself. Mm. So that ability to debug your own mind, to swivel that powerful spotlight of attention onto the known within well, that's you. That's awareness, isn't uh, it? It's almost yeah, a word absolutely. for that is self-awareness of that. Are you yeah, being yeah. lived? You know, we're all being lived by our cultural programming and how we've been brought yep. up. And I guess that awareness. But Steve's twitching yeah, to ask something. No, 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 I wasn't. I was no, like, no. I, I just thought a nice and place you're to being kind aware, of sorry. end the conversation was like, we've been meditating for about 20 years. And I think it's something that you've, and quite like, it's almost like they're juxtaposed. Like you've been studying the sciences, which is aimed outward and aimed at understanding the physical world and psychology, understanding the mind. And yeah. yet a huge portion of your life, you've been focused inwards to understand those deeper questions of meaning. How do I become more alive? How do I, what do I do edit next? Edit the malware in my computing, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I wonder if you could just talk briefly about meditation because it's something that we find profoundly something that we do. Because you talked there about mindfulness and is that like, I, like my own understanding, like they seem to be the same practices, just mindfulness tends to be a more modern word to make it more democratic and less religious and more attractive to more rational right brain thinkers but it seems like the function seems to be largely the same well i mean there's lot there's lots of different flavors and kinds of meditation for me the word meditation like covers a whole lot of broad things like it would it would cover prayer 
sort of meditative prayer. It would, it would cover kind of mantra-based type meditations, like as in transcendental meditation. It would cover devotional practices, you know, like opening your heart to your guru, whatever it might be. So I think for me, meditation, the word meditation connotes a sort of broad school of practices. And then within that broad school, particularly associated with the Buddhist tradition, there are practices that are more aesthetic, which are <clears throat> like cultivating the tool of attention so that whatever you give your attention to, you can attend to more fully, you can be more present and you can be more meticulous and you can actually be more inquisitive or more critical. I remember one of my Vipassana teachers pointing out to me that the whole point of Vipassana meditation, the whole point of meditation, is not just to keep sharpening the tool of attention. It's then to use that tool uh, to, it, it, as a form of self-education. It's like to bring into the spotlight of that sharp, meticulous attention aspects of your own belief systems or your own habits of mind which, which deserve some scrutiny, which are problematic, which be, can be submitted to instead of being the driving force of your attention they can now become the object of your attention themselves so that you can so if there are bits of you know weevils that have got into the system like you know you're a bad person if you make a mistake or mm. you know you're a bad person if you forgot your wife's birthday or you know all of that rubbish that gets in there you can you can begin to bring those things out of the shadows and into the light. And then if you can, I think with, with, with mindfulness, it's like you can bring a form of attention which is meticulous and unafraid, but also inquisitive and welcoming. And, you know, the importance of, of your awareness being non-judgmental. So that's when I, when Steve was talking just a moment ago, it, it came into my mind to say for a lot of people don't, make the, the really vital distinction between being self-aware and being self-conscious. So often, often because, you know, we're not very sophisticated about the, the education of attention, we get those things muddled up in our practice. And people sometimes, if they become aware of themselves, almost immediately, like, jumps on the back of that is some judgment. It's like, oh, I wish I wasn't, or I don't like it, or I don't like that bit of me. Whereas an enormous part of the trick of, of meditation or of mindfulness meditation, as I understand it, is to be able to develop that tool to be able to see what's going on behind the scenes in yourself more clearly. But, to, but the light that you shine on is a warm light. It's a welcoming light. So you are aware of these things and you allow yourself to understand them, to welcome them into your world, not to be, uh, adopt a hostile reaction to them i remember in the retreat that i did with ram das has come back to ram das we were talking about we're going full circle he he said in one of his talks i've never forgotten this he said i think i can honestly say that in all my years like 40 50 years of meditation and working on myself and so on that i have not got rid of a single dysfunctional neurotic habit in my life they're still there it's just that they, their voices are weaker and they don't bother me so much. So he said, you know, I can say, 
you know, one of them will come along and to like, you know, oh, you know, greed or something or other. Oh, hi, hello, my old friend. I haven't seen you for a while. You know, it's sort of like, no, sit down, tell me how things are going with you. <laughs> so it's like, you know, like the gentle alchemy of mindfulness practice is just to, is to defuse these things. They lose their power. But the way you do that is by befriending them, just, just as, for example, Jesus did, by befriending people who were beside themselves with anger or self-doubt. Uh, Osho used to tell the story about someone who came and spat on the Buddha. And the, and the Buddha, without missing a beat, the Buddha turned to him and said, do you have anything else to say to me? <laughs> right? Good. It's like with, you know, it's, this man was so incoherent with rage and disappointment and something that the only thing he could do was spit. But Buddha's reaction was, you know, you have something else to say to me? It's like was to welcome, to welcome the, the man with all his anger. And then, as I say, the kind of the, the alchemy is that that warm, non-judgmental, welcoming attention paradoxically takes begins to take some of the energy, some of the some of the power out of those dysfunctional attitudes. And I love that. I think it's you know, and it I, it works. It's it's worked for me. It's, ca so, it's so um, counterintuitive. Like it really is. Like whatever way. It's just, to, I know we to wrap this up, but even and like I've when got I was one growing thing up, I, I'd often suppress these hard kind of things and not want to, you know, say someone would come into me and I can see their rage and I'd be like, no, I don't want it. I don't have time for it. And I'd kind of push them away from me. But I've learned yeah. if you can simply say, oh, you seem really angry. And they go, yeah, I am. And you go, oh, I know what it feels like to be angry. And suddenly it all changes. <laughs> And I need to discover this like in the last five years. So this is a big if revelation you're, if to me. You, if, you're, if you're lucky, it all changes. Just every so often you get a bop on the nose. But, yeah, you know. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you live and learn. Yeah, uh, final, 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 final thing, because um, I know we're, we're gone way over. It was just in terms, of, and you can make this really short and concise. It's just really in terms of like, you're an expert at learning and you're like, you're a lifetime committed to learning and you're also a lifetime meditator. So I'm wondering like, what is the importance in terms of like nowadays we live in this productive, like ultra productive, people are trying to be super productive and they're looking for hacks to fast track things. And we're looking for shortcuts to get to the end result of things. And part of it is down to our exams. You know, the education system is very end focused in terms of exams. But I'm just wondering in terms of the link between taking our time and space and learning. Mm, yeah. And what is the link that you found in terms of that? That's uh, a really, it's a really good question. I don't know that I've found a, a, a direct link, but certainly that ability to, well, here's, here's, yeah, here's one very practical link, Dave. Um, it's when the schools that I've worked with, as schools begin to shift their culture from here's what you need to know, suck it up, to here's an interesting problem and challenge, let's investigate it. One of, the, one of the barriers that they often come up against is the length of a lesson. You know, it's like some schools still to this day I go in where the, le the, the length of the lesson is 35 minutes. You can't do much inquiry. You can't do much thinking. You can't do much discussing in 35 minutes or actually 25 minutes by the time you've arrived and settled down and then you've packed up at the end. So schools will have shifted the structure of their timetable. So you now have two hour lessons 
or a half day lesson or a whole day lesson or, or a whole week devoted to a subject so that there is really time to go deep, time to dig deep in with something. But taking time to think, I think you're absolutely right, is slow thinking, the slow thinking movement, like the slow cooking or the slow eating slow movement, food movement, is something, something that we should really, uh, really give our, our attention to, slow attention, not rushing to get the result, but steeping ourselves in something that's worth really thinking about. I was delighted the other day when someone told me a, re a, a remark of Wittgenstein, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein, who said that when two philosophers met each other, their greeting, as the, the, the form of greeting that they should have for each other was, take your time. That's nice. I like that. That's, that's a good one to end on. I like that. Guy, you're absolutely brilliant. Nice? I, I, you're brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I, I, really... I find myself more and more, like I just want to keep talking. You know, I, I find I'm more and more intrigued <laughs> yeah. the more I talk right. to you. So. Yeah. Okay, so okay, just... okay, Dave, just take your time. <laughs> oh, thank you, Guy. <laughs> thank you. Well, you see, ADA, you know, we're, and we're octopuses, <laughs> so we need to move at this stage, you know. Uh, but uh, Guy, for anyone listening, can they find out you've written oh, 30, 30 books, books, like co-authored a number of them and like written it like, I think around 20 yourself, which is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, yeah a lot. So, uh, so, so some of them, I, some of the things you've mentioned. So there's this strand of my thought, which is about sort of part of my intellectual academic writing life has been exploring what I think of as forms of attention that are often not conscious, not intellectual, not controlled. So there's a series of books called, one is called Hairbrain Tortoise Mind, why intelligence increases when you think less. Wow. The second one is called The Wayward Mind, An Intimate History of the Unconscious. And the third one is called Intelligence in the Flesh, Why Your Mind Needs Your Body Much More Than It Thinks. Yeah, that's the... Only so those, those, are, those, those books cover that. And then there are lots of books for education, like I already mentioned, Building Learning Power, or what I've more recently come to call the learning power approach. If you, go, if you Google the learning power approach, you'll find a whole series of, of books, very practical books designed for teachers, primary school teachers, secondary school teachers, school Parents. leaders, about how you build these habits of mind in young people, how you shift the culture of your school. So uh, there's lots of trees that have been hacked down in order to create the books that I've written, I'm afraid. So I apologize to the trees. Um, but hopefully some some of your listeners might want to uh, to have a look at some of them. You're Brilliant. great. Brilliant. Well, thank Thanks you so guy. much, Guy. Really, really I really, really enjoyed chatting with you and connecting with Loved you. Loved it. Loved it. Yeah, likewise. It's been it's been a real pleasure, lads. Good luck. Good good luck. Good work. What a legend. He really was. I felt I felt like I was talking to, you know, just kind a of lovely felt like dear after friend. we finished, it was like, Guy, can we go out for dinner and just hang out? You know, because it, it just felt like I really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. I hope you got something in that. Like, I guess the big takeaways I got is like that learning and how we can cultivate that within ourselves, that capacity to have curiosity and those openness to learning because so much nowadays, you know, we've all been conditioned via school and I see it sometimes in my own kids where they're like, they're like, they're very curious before school and then going to school, they're like, oh, you can see them just shutting down sometimes going, I don't want to. And 
that attitude. And I guess it's how to cultivate this lifelong capacity to learn. And I guess that's the ultimately what guys work is. But uh, I, I love the idea it. of for anyone there who's feeling kind of stuck, uninspired, find that one facet of your life where the you feel route. the taproot, where you feel you're in control of it, where you feel inspired, you feel excited, you love it and you're naturally drawn to it and start there. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. So I hope you enjoyed that. And yeah, thanks for making it this far. We really appreciate it. Big shout out to Sarah Fawcett and Johnny Cahill for producing and editing and making this podcast possible. Thanks to you for making it this far because fair play to you. Thanks, Mel. And uh, if you do want to share this and get this message out to more people, please share it. If you're on Instagram, share it to your story and we will reshare it. And if you want to support our podcast, just leave a message on, leave a what do you call it a review a, fi- a five star a five star review yeah please leave a five star review not a four or five but you can leave a four or two that's okay um, on Apple or Spotify or those platforms so thanks Mel bye 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 bye